Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Today we pick up again with the kingdom parables. And today we're blessed and privileged to study two parallel parables, two parables with the same message. And these are so encouraging and so clear. The parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great price or the pearl of great value. This is all about the value of kingdom citizenship. The amazing truth that when people, by God's Spirit, are regenerated, when they truly discover the kingdom, when they truly discover the gospel, not just in an intellectual way or an affirmative way, but in their hearts, when they truly discover the kingdom, they have no problem surrendering everything to Christ and to be in it, in the kingdom. So my sincerest prayer is that God, through this means of grace, the preaching of the Word, you would be saved and sanctified. Let me read to you this passage, Matthew 13, beginning in verse 44, just a few sentences there down to verse 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the word of God. Years ago, a young man came to my office. He'd been attending our church. He was interested in the things of Christ, interested in the gospel, interested in the church, And uh, he really wanted to know more about salvation. He just said, you know, I want to talk about how I can go to heaven. This was a big kid. He was a starter on the high school football team. And he, uh, I think he even was the uh, team captain, one of the team captains. Uh, Big kid. His name was Billy, of course. That's what big kids are named. Billy, big Billy, came to my office and wanted to know about the gospel. And so I explained to him the gospel Message And Billy was a smart kid. He made good grades. In fact, he, he uh, uh, I think, was an honor student and, and did really good. In fact, he went on to get some scholarships, uh, not just uh, uh, scholarships for his sports, but scholarships, uh, academic scholarships. And he understood the gospel. He understood the, the idea of Christ's atoning death. He understood that he needed a Savior. He understood these, these facts. And uh, he was not entirely blinded. You know, some people just don't get it. They're entirely blinded. But he was not entirely blinded by the, the God of this world. He, he comprehended. He understood. He was asking questions about it. And it seemed like he was really, uh, like really uh, going to be saved. He, he was not the hard soil, hardened soil that we talked about uh, a few weeks ago. He was someone who was, in, a, in essence, was accepting the gospel. And so I just asked him. I said, Billy, are you, are you ready? Do you want to surrender everything? Do you want to... Follow Christ? Do you understand your desperate need of Jesus, and your, are you ready to, to repent of sin and follow Christ in faith? He said, well, you know, I understand all this, and I believe in God. I pray all the time. I, I think of God. I, I, I talk about God to my friends even. But he said, I'm just not ready to go all in. He said, I, I like this stuff, and I want to continue coming to your church. If you're okay with that, I, I plan on coming more, but I don't, I don't really feel like I need to be that intense about all this. And I told him, I said, Billy, there are, there are two things that need to happen in your heart, and I'm going to pray for these two things. I said, first of all, you need to be fully awakened to the condition 
of your heart. I told him my own testimony. I myself, a, a pastor's kid, a, a, a missionary kid, I knew the gospel. In fact, looking all the way back, I don't remember a time that I ever really didn't believe the gospel truths, at least intellectually. But I told him that at some point in my life, I, I had to realize what I was unless I surrendered everything. My destiny was hell because I deserved it. Because really down deep inside, I was dark. And I, and I needed God's Spirit to come to me and not just give me the facts, but come to me and really open my eyes to who I was. This is what Jesus calls the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit comes to people's hearts, not just to their minds, but to their hearts, and teaches them of righteousness and judgment and sin. Opens their eyes to who they really are. And I said, only God can do this in your heart, and so I'm going to pray for that in your own heart, this, that you would have this overcoming sense of dread of God's judgment because of who you really are. So I told him about this, and I told him about the other part of my salvation was finally, after months of sort of living in dread as a teenager, I finally got to the point where I just said, okay, I give up, I, what we just saying, I surrender all. I repent, I give everything to Christ, I, I, I will be defined by Him, I will follow Him, I will be radically saved. I will not just sort of partially follow Him in my mind, I will radically repent and turn to Christ. And I told Billy, I said, Billy, what's well, interesting, when I did that, I was at this camp, and I said, when I did that, I, I, I just cried out to God. I didn't meet with anybody or walk some mile. I just cried out to God. I knew, it. I knew about salvation enough to know that I just cry out in repentance and faith. I did that, and I remember I went to bed that night, and I laid down, and a burden that I didn't even know existed was lifted from me. And I laid there in bed, stayed up late at night, not because I was dreading God's judgment, because I was so happy that the burden of my sin rolled away. Smiling from ear to ear. I had this huge smile, I told him. I had this huge smile. And I said, I'm going to pray that you do those two things, that you become convicted of your sin, that you become in tune with exactly what, just in your, not just in your mind, but in your heart, with exactly what God says you are without him, and then that you would follow up with genuine repentance and surrender. Well, Billy said, thank you. He left. He didn't want to do anything at that point. He, he left. I prayed for him. He went unchanged. He still came to church. He still showed up from time to time. I, I thought of him as sort of the, the, the weedy soil, what we talked about, the preoccupied soil. Okay, there was some level of acceptance, but really he was more overwhelmed with the concerns of this world. That's what really concerned him more than, more than Christ, more than heaven, more than, more than God and repentance. He's the preoccupied soil. So it was to my great and happy surprise to get a phone call a few months later from Billy. I said, Billy, I said, I'm so glad to hear from you. I can't believe you're, you're calling me. He said, Pastor, you know that nagging dread that you've told me about? And you know that smile that you said you got when you finally repented? I said, yeah. He said, I got it. I said, praise the Lord, Billy. Well, all that to say this, what happened to Billy and what happened to me, this is what is illustrated in these two parables today. There is this great revelation, there is this great discovery, and then there is this joyful, willing, and total surrender of everything in order to obtain that one great thing. That one thing is Jesus, the result is salvation and citizenship in the kingdom. 
And so what I'd like to do is just to briefly go through uh, this passage again, sort of the ancient context, you know, what would the people that, at that time listening to Jesus' parable understand? Just briefly go through that, and then I want to offer two points of application. The first parable, the parable of hidden treasure, it's pretty simple. Two sentences in the ESV. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man buys and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, some of you, you read this parable, and from the very start, you're going to struggle with this idea here that this man seems like he's a little bit unethical. This doesn't seem right. This seems a little bit, maybe not immoral, but just a little shady, perhaps. It seems a little deceptive for him to find a treasure in someone else's field because it's not his because he has to go buy it and not tell the owner. Isn't the right thing for him to do? The morality would demand him to go talk to the owner and let him know about this, and maybe the owner might reward him in some way. But if you, if you think that, if, if you're caught up in that mentality, um, you've missed the point of the parable. The, the point of the parable is not business ethics. The point of the parable is not things about ancient burial of treasure or what to do when you find treasure. As a matter of fact, in the ancient world, they did have a much more um, sort of finder's keeper's mentality. I'll talk about that uh, in a moment. But this is not about business ethics. This is about the kingdom. All all the parables are about the kingdom. It's not about business. It's not about what to do when you find treasure. These are not little moral fables. This is truths about the kingdom. The point of this passage is this, is this man finds something that is so great, so great in value, so beautiful in his sight, that he's willing to give up everything to get it. That's the point of the parable, not business ethics. Like I said, in Israel, even, even uh, most scholars say this, uh, back in Israel in that time, they had this sort of finder keepers, finder's keepers idea. In Israel, uh, if you find something buried that was valuable, it would be yours. And that was a rule, a written law, actually, back in Jesus' day. Uh, this was something written down. In fact, if you think about it, there in Israel, you have, even in Jesus' day, there were thousands of years of civilizations that had been uh, uh, there in that Middle, Middle East, that area of the world. And if uh, you do very much digging, you're going to find stuff. I, I've been to Israel three times. One, once as a little boy, another time as a teenager, and another time as uh, Becky and I, not long after we got married, we went to Israel. And each time I went, the whole of Israel was dug a little more. People dug down. I could just watch it go down further. When we first went to Masada, which is where the people fled in Israel, uh, after they came and destroyed Jerusalem, people fled up on this mountain by the Dead Sea called Masada. Uh, Literally, when I went as as a little boy in the early 80s, it was just a mound of dirt. We went up there, stood on it, came back down. That's it. When I went back the next time, they started finding some of Herod's old palace structures. When I went back the third time, they had uncovered the whole top of the mound, and it was like a huge palace complex that you can walk through and look at and explore. Israel is loaded with these treasures all in the dirt, and so they had a law back then that would say, basically, finders keepers. Most scholars would say that this man was probably actually more moral than what was required of him. He didn't have to buy the field. He could have just walked off, but, but... To illustrate his purpose, Jesus said, listen, he's willing to give up everything to get this treasure. That's the point of the parable. We don't need to get sidetracked about business ethics. This is not a message on business ethics. It's a message about the kingdom. This man finds the treasure. Perhaps he worked in the field. Perhaps he was plowing the field. Maybe he just the corner of a treasure chest, that's what I like to imagine, was sticking up out of the ground, and he just stubbed his toe on it. We don't know how he found it, but he found it. 
That treasure was out of sight. He didn't he wasn't looking for it. He didn't think, hey, I'm looking for a treasure. Surely there's a treasure in this field. He just was going about his business, and, and suddenly he finds this treasure. This, makes, this, this man makes this discovery. It's, he realizes instantly it's worth absolutely everything that he owns. He sells everything that he owns. Can you imagine selling everything? Everything. 100%. Liquidating everything in order to gain that one great treasure. Well, the second parable is the same story, but with different subjects and a little bit different twist. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had bought, had and bought it. The word for merchant there is emporos, where we get the word emporium, if you've ever heard that. This man was a wholesaler. In other words, he wasn't a retailer. He didn't uh, find pearls and sell them to the public. He searched for pearls. He found pearls, and then he would sell them at wholesale to retailers. That's what that word means. And so he was the one that would search for these kind of gems. This man is is a little bit unlike the, the guy before in that he is on this search. He's hunting and searching and looking. He's trying to find something. Pearls back then were what you might think of as diamonds today. They would be seen as extremely valuable. If you think about it, back then there was no kind of way that they could harvest pearls in shallow pools that people could go up and just grab the pearls out of these, uh, these clams. No, they had to, they had to uh, oysters, they had to uh, dive, free dive, down in the depths of the ocean. They would have these little boats and they'd go out to the I don't know, the Gulf of Aquaba or, or uh, Persian Gulf somewhere, and they, they would take these little boats out there, and they would just dive off as deep as they possibly could. Every year, many people, we have records, many people would die in search of fine pearls back then. These were very valuable, valuable gems. In fact, back then, the pearl, in Jesus' era, the pearl was known as the queen of gems. And I was reading this week that I found out that the, the, the peak of pearl prices in human history, the peak of pearl prices was during the Roman Empire. So it's no wonder that Jesus picked the idea of a pearl merchant. As you'd expect with pearls, as with other gems, the color and size makes a difference in price. And clearly, this particular pearl that he found, it ticked all the right boxes. This pearl that the merchant find the merchant found is a pearl of great value, and it's so stunning, it's so shockingly magnificent, he is compelled to go and sell everything that he has in order to obtain this pearl. Again, this is not a lesson on business practices. Those of you in business know this. It wouldn't be good to sell everything just to buy one thing in hopes that you might some make some great profit. That's usually a gamble that doesn't work out very well. This is not a lesson in business practices. This is, this is a lesson about the kingdom. This man has found something that is so beautiful. He's so captivated by the beauty and and value of this pearl that he's willing to sell everything. And the application, of course, is that people are so captivated by the beauty and truth of the kingdom that they're willing to give up everything to enter it. Now, that's my story of salvation. That's the story of Billy, the football player. It's a story of any true believer They have this shocking revelation of who they are, their need for God's grace. They 
understand they need Him, they need to be in His kingdom. And upon that amazing revelation, they happily surrender anything to get into the kingdom. They follow Jesus. They surrender all. Well, this makes up two points of application from these kingdom parables, and it answers this question, how do people enter Christ's kingdom? How do people come into the kingdom? First of all, it is by a, number one, magnificent discovery. There's a magnificent discovery. You'll notice in both of these parables, there is a shocking or surprising discovery. For the fellow in verse 44, it's a treasure he stumbles on in a field. For the other, other, in verse 44, he's been searching and searching perhaps his whole life, and finally he finds what he's looking for. For one, he discovers the treasure first, then he's compelled and overwhelmed with a desire to have it. For the other, he's been searching for this treasure his whole life until he he finally finds it, and again, he's compelled similarly to sell everything to have it. And And I think this is a great analogy of how people find Christ, isn't it? There are those who aren't even looking. They're just living their lives. They're doing their thing. They're living the way they've always lived. They're not really looking for anything. Maybe they're not even, they don't even feel compelled to search for Christ or search for God. But, but one day, going about their own business, one day just there's this shocking discovery. And, and it's a discovery about who they are, that they are dead in sin, that they need a Savior. It's a shocking discovery of, of where they stand with God without Christ, that they, they stand to be judged they have that nagging dread like I talked about. They have that, that feeling, that sense that something's got to be done, be done but they, the, the discovery is at the same time magnificent. There is something that can be done. You can enter the kingdom. Then there's the other fellow who's been searching and searching his whole life. He's been looking, he, he, maybe from religion to religion, maybe from, from this belief to that belief, maybe searching it uh, like... Uh, Solomon says, and he searched it in, in women and in money and in things and in and knowledge, and he searched everywhere. But the end of the matter is that he could only find his joy, he could only find his happiness by surrendering everything to God. Now, both of these men make a great discovery, a magnificent discovery. Now, this is what is called the doctrine of of effectual calling, or the older phrase for it is the doctrine of irresistible grace. This is a parable. These two parables are parables about irresistible grace. Now, what is this doctrine, the doctrine of irresistible grace? This doctrine, like so many uh, of Bible truths, perhaps all Bible truths, has been twisted and mischaracterized and caricatured in order to win arguments. But the doctrine of ir- irresistible grace is not the belief that God will save people against their will. That's not what this doctrine says. In other words, God's not going to grab some guy by the scruff of the neck who doesn't want to repent, who doesn't want to be saved, and and drag him into the kingdom because, after all, he's on the list of elect. That is not the doctrine of irresistible grace. It's also not the opposite, where someone is, you know, pleading to be in the kingdom and wants to be uh, repentant and wants to be broken, and God says, sorry, I can't let you in. You're not on the list. That is not the doctrine of irresistible grace. James Montgomery Boyce the late James Montgomery Boyce, probably one of the greatest defenders of Reformed tradition and the doctrines of grace, he said this, In election and irresistible grace, God does not disregard or act contrary to the will of any man or woman. Rather, He regenerates the individual, and as a result, a will 
is born that now desires what the old will previously despised. So irresistible grace does not mean God acts contrary to man's will. Rather, he changes our wills and gives us a deep desire for that thing that we have discovered. They see this treasure. The man sees the pearl and springing up in their heart is this deep, profound desire. That's irresistible grace. You say, what about all those passages that talk about when the gospel is given to people and people resist God? I mean, isn't there examples in life and in the Bible? Isn't the Bible replete with examples of people resisting God, resisting the Holy Spirit, rejecting God? One passage that people bring up is Acts 7.51. Stephen is preaching right before he's martyred. He says, you stiff-necked people, you always resist the Holy Spirit. And people quote that and say, oh, that Grace is not irresistible. Well, the doctrine of irresistible grace has never been about whether or not people can reject God. Of course people can reject God. Again, the Bible is replete with examples of people rejecting God, rejecting the Word, rejecting the Gospel. Of course they can. In fact, the story of the soils, the parable of the soils we study, is, is mainly about the way people reject the Gospel, reject Christ. Irresistible grace does not teach that no one can resist these things. If if that were true, then everybody we witness to would be saved, right? No, what it means is that God, by His Spirit, has the power to overcome any resistance. Even the people who seem most resistant, God can break through and create in them a new heart, a heart that says, I'll sell everything to follow Christ. I'll sell everything to be in the kingdom. Well, this is the story of every genuine Christian, isn't it? We are born, we come into this world resistant to the gospel, blind, dead, rebellious, but God has a special plan, and that is to change our hearts. He changes our hearts so dramatically that springing up within us suddenly, maybe without even knowing it, suddenly springing up within us is this desire to run to Jesus, to surrender all. The beauty of irresistible grace is that this grace always works. It never fails. When God changes a heart and He places inside someone's heart a desire to repent and surrender, they always follow through. He enables them and empowers them to always follow through. And eventually that person is repentant and has faith and is broken and is sanctified, and then eventually they're glorified. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 6. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's giving me. Raise them up on the last day. This is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him would have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is what Jesus said to Nicodemus, very familiar verse, John 3, 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. God's going to do something in your heart, Nicodemus. God must do a transformation in your heart. When that transformation happens, you flee to me. You run. You do anything you can to be a citizen of the kingdom. Similar to what Paul told Titus, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, 
by the washing of the regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Something happens on the inside. Paul told the people at Ephesus, he said, we start out and we are dead in our sin. We're incapable of willing God. We're incapable of, uh, of tr- a true desire, a genuine desire. Maybe we, on the surface emotionally or, or intellectually approve or affirm God, but, but down deep inside there is nothing but death. Then he says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What a beautiful story of irresistible grace. But God, in the midst of our death, we're dead at the bottom of the sea, and God calls us to life. But God, because of His richness of mercy. By the way, I've noticed um, in recent years, there are a lot of Christians who love that phrase, use that phrase, but God. And usually they use it to apply to all sorts of positive things happening in their lives most notoriously, physical blessings. That is most certainly not how Paul uses it here. When Paul says, but God, he's talking about the incomprehensible grace and mercy of God that miraculously regenerates a person's heart. It's not about your medicine working or your cancer going to remission or whatever. We can praise God for those things. We can thank God for those providences and those circumstances. Those are things we ought to worship God for. But but don't use that phrase, but God, because That phrase Paul uses to talk about regeneration, the the most amazing miracle of all, and that is to raise a dead soul. Don't use it that way. You'll be joining a lot of people who cheapen that wonderful grace of God. In fact, a lot of prosperity preachers use that phrase to talk about physical prosperity. Now, back on our text here. Paul said about God's irresistible grace, he told the Romans, it's all part of his, this magnificent, beautiful time of, of going for all the way from before time all the way to salvation. Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called. That's effectual calling. That's irresistible grace. He called them, and if he called them, those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So it's from start to finish, from before time began, all the way to glory. It's all part of God's magnificent plan of grace. One more passage here about irresistible grace that this parable teaches, John 6, 44. No one can come to me, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So again, there's this complete view. God changes us and gives us this desire. No one comes into the kingdom kicking and screaming. They all come into the kingdom like these, these two men did willing to give up everything, singing the song, I surrender all. That's what happens in the kingdom. Well, that brings us to number two. They make this wonderful, amazing discovery. They discover their sin. They discover that they are dead. They discover their spiritual condition, and they discover that there's a way out. There's a gem. There's a beautiful story of the gospel. There's Jesus Christ. And so what do they do? What do we find in their lives? Number two joyful surrender. After this magnificent discovery, there's this joyful surrender. Did you see there what it says in verse 44, about halfway through, beginning of the second sentence? Then in his, what, joy, he goes out, sells everything that he has, and he buys that field. In the second parable, Jesus doesn't mention 
the word joy there explicitly, but implicitly we see it there. This merchant has been searching, he's been looking, he's been searching, he's been looking, and he finally finds that pearl of great value. And there's this, again, this joyful surrender. He immediately goes and sells everything that he has in order to obtain that pearl. Such a beautiful picture of salvation. Have you ever heard of that, uh, excuse me, that phrase, ordo salutis? It is a Latin phrase. And I've mentioned this before, but it's been a long time. Ordo salutis, it's, it's Latin for the order of salvation. Theologians have tried to figure out, okay, how is a person saved from start to finish? So through the centuries, they've They've wanted to give a, a logical, maybe even chronological laying out of how an individual is saved. Let me walk through some of this. I won't do the whole ordo salutis all at once, but let me just give you the first few. Clearly, it begins, as Pastor Ryan talked about last week, it begins in the mind and purposes of God. So there's this intra-Trinitarian agreement before the world is even created, the plan of creation, the fall, incarnation, redemption, people being saved Second coming, the end of time, the glory of Christ and all His people. That was all planned out. It all begins there. That's where the whole thing begins, before the foundation of the earth. It's that moment where we see, uh, again, what Pastor Ryan mentioned last week from Ephesians, or what he preached on last week from Ephesians, where he says, uh, you were predestined before the foundation of time. This is what was going on in the mind of God. He could see all this. He planned all this. It was all part of His magnificent plan. And by the way, I'll just say this. I know that the idea of, of election and predestination, these are, these are hard things for us to comprehend and wrap our minds around. Um, but you have to do something with them, right? I mean, you can't just ignore it as though that helps anything because those words, even the word election and the word predestination, they're right there in the Bible. So you have to think about it, do something with it. You have to make decisions about what this means. So that's the first thing. That's the first step. Then after that, you have... Uh, Jesus coming to this earth, the, the incarnation, and the purpose of redemption, of course, that's atonement. So he makes atonement for the sin of all who would believe. That's the next step, atonement. Then what we could, then we have what we could title the gospel call. This is when an individual, so those things sort of happen apart from the individual. You have God's eternal purposes. You have Jesus' uh, atoning death. Those are sort of apart from the individual. Now what we have, what we could call the gospel call. This is when the person hears the gospel. The gospel, the truths of the gospel are are given to a person. It could be through personal witness. It could be through a gospel tract. It could be through a sermon on a Sunday. But a person hears the gospel. I remember uh, one of my friends, uh, in fact, he's... he's, uh, not just a friend, he's a close confidant in ministry. He's now uh, serving in Israel for many, many years uh, as a missionary in Israel for many, many years. He, uh, his job was to witness to Jews who lived in South America. And for about 20 years he was there, and now he's moved to Israel again to give the gospel to people in Israel. He told me his testimony, uh, the beginning of salvation for him, the first time he heard the gospel call was when a friend who was a fellow Cub Scout who is really good at memorizing data and words and information this friend could do real good impersonations, and he decided he would impersonate Billy Graham. And one night around the campfire, he impersonated Billy Graham and just gave a presentation of the gospel. And it went down deep into my friend's heart. He wasn't saved right there, but it went down deep into his heart. 
the gospel call was given to him. So the gospel call comes in different ways, in different uh, uh, patterns. It comes in pieces sometimes, right? It comes a little piece here, a little piece there. But the gospel call comes, it makes sense in a person's mind. This is, again, this is the, the first step in terms of a person becoming saved in their own experience. This is the very first step, the gospel call. Then, what's the next step of how God saves a person? God's Spirit, using the gospel call, issues what we call an effectual call or irresistible grace. He makes that call appealing and compelling in that person's heart. It doesn't just remain up here or an emotional thing for them. It goes down deep into who they are. This irresistible call, this effectual call goes out to that person, and that person suddenly finds the gospel, not just information, not just interesting truths, not just some religious tradition. Suddenly, they find themselves compelled to do anything they can to answer that call. When that happens, what invariably comes next, according to Jesus, what I just read, according to Paul, what I just read, according to this very parable, what comes next? That person has been regenerated. That person has been called, not just in a surface gospel call sense, but in an irresistible way. That person surrenders all. That person is born again, and that person responds to his new regeneration, his new heart, this change. He responds in repentance and faith. Well, we'll stop there in the ordo salutis. There are more steps, but we can stop there for our purposes today. Faith and repentance, that's what happens. That's how people respond invariably to regeneration. When their hearts are changed, they always respond the same way. Faith and repentance. And that's what's pictured here in these parables. These guys don't just discover some sort of truth, and it's an interesting fact, and it's a curious a thing, a curiosity that they want to look into more. No, these things come to them in a new and different way. These things are life-changing, so life-changing that they're willing to give up everything to obtain these things. They surrender everything in joy. Upon that revelation, upon that magnificent discovery, they give up everything for that one treasure, for that one magnificent pearl. Now, does that mean... Everyone who wants to be a Christian must sell everything they have and give the proceeds to the pastor. I wish. But that's not what that means. And it's not what happens as we see other people saved in the Bible. That's not what happens. But it does mean that when someone wants to come to Christ, they have to have a determined willingness. Lord, I'll give up everything. If it costs me my life, if it costs me my spouse, if it costs me my health, if it costs me my wealth, I will give up everything in order to follow you. It also means a demonstrative willingness. It's not just words saying that I surrender all or singing the song, I surrender all. Then there's this life that's lived out that demonstrates that this person has indeed surrendered all. He gives like he's never given before. He He loves like he's never loved before. He volunteers like he's never volunteered before. He demonstrates throughout his life this willingness to surrender all. There are many of us, and like me, you have been regenerated. You have born again. You have repented. You've come to Christ. You've heard that gospel call. You've felt that irresistible call. You've repented and in faith surrendered everything and followed Jesus. And the question for you is, is your life 
defined by this surrender. We, we see that surrender in these two guys. Is your life defined that? Defined by that? Do you just live life like everybody else and then show up to church, or do you actually live life surrendered to Christ? What in your life would tell anybody looking in from the outside that you are surrendered to Jesus? So the question for you is, are you continuing in that life? If you've been regenerated, you ought to continue that life that determines surrender, the demonstrations of that surrender over and over again. Others of you, maybe you're like, Billy was, or even I was, before we gave in. You like Jesus. You believe in these facts and interesting data. You're not against God or any of these things. But you're not going to be someone who surrenders everything. You're going to be some kind of Jesus freak. And that just tells me that God has not yet opened your eyes and given you this desperate desire to to see the morbid condition of your heart, the destiny of your soul, and to flee to Christ and enter His kingdom. My prayer is that you would make that magnificent discovery that God would change your heart and that you would do the same thing that Billy and I did and many of us in this room have, and that is to surrender joyfully everything. But let's pray for that right now. Father, we thank You for these truths. We thank You for this Word. For many of us, it is a... uh, an alarming reminder of what we did at salvation, that we surrendered everything. We may not even have known that song, I Surrender All, but we, we sang it in our hearts at salvation. We surrendered everything. And so, Lord, I pray that we would return to that love that we once had. And, Lord, if there's repentance that needs to happen in our lives and our hearts, help us do that. Help us return to that that first love. Help us to, with zeal, produce works in keeping with that repentance. Help us to live our lives demonstrating our surrender. Others watching, or perhaps even in this room, Lord, on a Saturday morning, perhaps they've never heard that effectual, irresistible call to their soul. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that for them right now. Grace them with a compelling, overwhelming sense, overwhelming desire, overwhelming knowledge, that nagging dread that without you they are dead, they are going to be judged, the reality of hell. Lord, I pray that they would feel the fire of hell upon their feet. They would get a great sense that the answer is the gospel, is Jesus Christ, and I pray that they would with joy flee to Christ and surrender all. Lord, you know, I preach this same thing every week. Preach different passages. We look at all the details and the subjects, but I preach the same thing every week. I preach that sinners would be saved and saints would be sanctified. And so, Lord, I ask that you would do that by your Spirit and the power of your Word. And in the name of Jesus, amen.